We're going to cover a little ground today because I want us to land on a few verses towards the end of chapter 31. So I want to highlight what comes before, and then we'll camp out what's there. I went too long in the first hour, um, <laughs> but I'm going to do better in this hour. See, the first hour is rehearsal, and uh, so, <laughs> so now I know what to leave out and how to get it together so y'all can get out by... Uh, 11 or 12 or <clears throat> 1 or whatever. Get comfortable. So, folks, uh, check out Jeremiah chapter 30 right at the beginning. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Remarkable verses. That's called amazing grace. Israel, the most privileged, spiritually privileged people group on earth. And sadly, the most disobedient and unresponsive people group on earth. And one of the consequences is uh, they're going to be carried off, as you know by now, into a 70-year period of Babylonian captivity. But prior to their departure, God says, Jeremiah, write a book of promise. Tell them they're coming back. Tell them I'm not going to destroy them. I surely will discipline them. But tell them there's a return into the land. It's grace. Is it about Israel? Not really. <clears throat> it's about the character of God revealed through Israel. What do we find out about God? He's gracious. It's just amazing grace. Think about being a chosen people. Think about being a people to whom God gives his word, sends prophets, messengers, representatives, says, I will be like a husband to you. Think about a people to whom God says, I want you to be in covenant with me. And then think about that people saying, no, we will worship false gods. And then think about God saying, <clears throat> but I will not forsake you anyway. That reveals less about Israel than it reveals about God, the grace of God. So please uh, know it isn't about uh, just the history of Israel. No, 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 no. It's about God's dealings with Israel so you can know how God deals with you. When you're at your worst and I'm at my worst, God is at his gracious best. If you're in covenant with Almighty God through Jesus the Son, you're secure. How do I know that? Check out how God responded to disobedient Israel. So that's kind of the theme of chapter 30. And so we'll skip because it's a major theme uh, I don't have to read all the verses. In fact, I'll just highlight maybe one more. Verse 11. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. God's promise to Israel, I will not destroy you but I will discipline you. And that's how it is with us. 
I will not forsake you. I will not destroy you. Children of God, says God, but I surely will perfect you. I surely will discipline you, especially when you sin. Okay, so that's kind of chapter 30. And uh, if you move on to 31, the theme of God's grace, mercy, and faithfulness to his promises continues. And uh, I'm skipping quite a bit for a reason. Just you might want to look at verse 20. How about verse... Yes, sir, Bob. Uh, yes, that's correct. Most will, will, will pass on in Babylonian captivity. That's exactly right. And their children and others will reenter the land. That's a great question. Uh, the main reason is uh, Israel disobeyed by not giving the land rest as God commanded. And th- this was over 490 years. They were supposed to give the land rest every seven years. So it computes to 70 years where God says, oh, I will give the land rest by pulling you out of it. So that's a good question, Bob. Good observation. So verse 20, I stepped up here. Is it any better? Okay, good. I'm kind of like a small person, and so it just dawned on me. I, I can't see over the heads myself over the people in the first row, so that's probably you. That's probably you too. Okay. So verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Ephraim is another word for Israel. Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. I just want you to see the father heart of God. He's very big. He's very powerful. He's a consuming fire, and we must not minimize that. But don't miss the tenderness of this mighty God. He puts himself in the position as father to a son, even a wayward son, you see. Okay, so now here's what, where I want us to camp out for the remainder of our time. I think chapter 31 contains perhaps one of the most striking passages in all of the Old Testament, and I would like to call your attention to it. It begins in verse 31, verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, days are coming. So is that past, present, or future tense? Future. It's future tense. Days are coming. From Jeremiah's perspective, they've not yet, what we're about to read has not yet happened, but will happen. Important that you keep that in mind. Days are coming. Who who says so? Who declares that? The Lord. Please keep that in mind. This is not hearsay. This is God's very clear declarative statement. Something's going to happen in the future, says God. When, who will? I will, meaning God. In other words, what we're about to read has nothing to do with human initiative, virtue, anything like that. This is what we're about to read is inaugurated, authored, and on the initiative of God himself. We do not have an I will, if you will, partnership here. We have just an I will. God declares through Jeremiah there will be a future day when he will do something. I will make a what kind of covenant? 
If it's a new covenant, what does that imply? There has been an old covenant, okay? And God this is all God's doing. It has nothing to do with anybody. God says, in the future. He hasn't done it from Jeremiah's perspective yet, but he's revealing what he's going to do way back in Jeremiah's day. I'm going to make, I will make a new covenant with whom? House of Israel and? So what's another name for those, for that? House of Israel, House of Judah. Combined, they're, they're, that's called, well, you north and south, but I mean, it's another way of saying, I, I, I'm making a comment, the Jews. Those are, those, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Now, folks, um, you can disagree, you can be disgusted, and you can be angry by anything I say. But if it's consistent with the scriptures, take it up with God. This new covenant, which has not yet happened from Jeremiah's perspective, but which God told Jeremiah to tell us about, this new covenant is made with the Jews. Are you seeing that in the text? This is not some little Jewish guy trying to give you a bunch of Jewish propaganda. This text says it's made, it will be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Is that correct? Okay. I just want, I just, because people would tell me, why do you keep tooting your Jewish horn? I'm not. You, you try to, you try to translate this and interpret this in any other way. I mean, my question is why preachers and teachers today don't treat the scriptures in their Jewish context? Because I'm just reading what it says here. Charlie, I think you had your hand up, brother. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of things happening in this uh, in this text. You are correct. Absolutely. God, uh, God has told us about all this, didn't He, Charlie, in advance? Thank you, brother. So, okay, so let's continue. So now verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. He uses these wonderful human analogies that we can relate to. Father, child, and now husband. But this is the covenant which I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Who is he making this covenant with? It says right there, folks, house of Israel. I will put, why am I harping on this? Because you're seeing an increasing movement to uh, suggest that because the Jews have turned from their Messiah, their Messiah has turned from them. Well, uh, I don't really care about the Jews as much as I care about the Jewish Messiah. Be careful about detracting from the merciful, gracious character of God. He does not respond to us in light of uh, our response to him. He loves those he's in covenant with unconditionally. This new covenant is established with, it says right there, the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, 
they shall be my people. Now, though this has application to all who will believe, folks, you can't jump to the application by skipping the immediate context. So today in churches, you have this applied all the time to the church as it does apply. But what happened to the Jews? What happened to Israel in our philosophy, in our evangelistic strategy, in our missions giving? What happened? Is God through with them all of a sudden? Well, um, not according to this text. Hang in there. I'll put my law within them and on their heart I'll write it. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Now, folks, what you have here is the promise of a new covenant in the old covenant. This is perhaps, therefore, one of the most striking passages in all of the old covenant because it's not mentioned anywhere else in the old covenant so clearly, so precisely, so specifically. This is the predicted, prophesied announcement of a covenant to come. It didn't exist in Jeremiah's day. It's future to it. It will be established between God and the Jewish people first. Now, but here's the question. Why is there a need for a new covenant? And here's the answer. Humankind cannot live by the old covenant. How do I know that? We have Israel's example. And that's why they're still in this book. They exemplify Human nature. So here's what happens. God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai while the rest of Israel is encamped below. They're not allowed to get too close to the mountain or touch it because it will take on a holy character due to the visitation upon it by God. Moses goes up empty-handed, but he doesn't come down empty-handed. He leaves with commandments, which are a reflection of the holy, moral, and ethical character of God. In ten commandments is summed up the very heart of Almighty God. In fact, those ten commandments really are a summation of all the world's law books and statutes and ordinances and regulations. They're all contained concisely and precisely in the Ten Commandments. And uh, Moses brings down the law. And Israel rejoices. We're chosen. We're free. And God has blessed us with the law. And then all Israel uh, listens to Moses when he said, God said, there'll be blessing if you obey and you will be consequenced if you disobey. And Israel said, oh, no, we will obey. We will do the law. Let me ask you a question. How'd they do? That's the point. So this obviously means there's something wrong with the law, right? It means there's something wrong with them. That's the point. They get the perfect law of God because he's perfect. But it becomes like a mirror to them. They find out we can't do it. We won't do it. We don't want to do it. And so the law becomes like a mirror. 
showing them what they're like. Now, God already knew, but they had to be persuaded, lest they think in their own virtue, sure, they could live holy lives. We could do it. We could change the world. It's the attitude today. I mean the degraded Hollywood community think they can hold hands, have some goofball rock concert, raise some money from poor farmers, and we're going to solve the problems of the world. And after that, they sleep with one another. The old covenant and its nature is meant to define our nature, and I'll tell you why. The law can never change us. It can only reveal what we're already made of. So Paul says, in the new covenant, you know what he says? I'm disgusted with myself because the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. He said, I'm a wretch. Who's going to set me free? As with Israel, so with everyone who tries to live up to a code of moral and ethics, you will find out sooner or later you won't, you can't, you don't want to. And so God has revealed to Israel, through Israel, that though the old covenant is a magnificent reflection of his holy character, it also is a wonderful opportunity for us to see our sin nature. We can't live by them. We need a change. Now, God could have said, I'm through with you, Israel. I chose you. I blessed you. I gave you the privilege of my law. You desecrated it. You denied it. You divorced yourself from it. I will wipe you out. That's what people are essentially suggesting happened. It's called replacement theology. But God didn't replace those people. You know what he said? I'll make a new means of connection with you. I'll have a new transaction with you. Not like the old one which you broke. A new covenant. That doesn't look like God's replacing Israel. That looks like God has an ongoing plan for Israel. So here's the new covenant. You have a sin problem, Israel, revealed by my law, but not removed by my law. I'll give you a new deal. It's amazing grace, amazing grace that God would have an ongoing plan with humankind so as not to wipe it out in its entirety, but to provide a means by which it could escape from the throes of its sin. And so the new covenant, folks, is the covenant of God's grace with humankind. It's nothing but God's grace. It's an I will covenant. It's not I will uh, connect with you if you clean up your act. No, it's I will. It's an entirely new covenant. In the new covenant, God says, I will because you won't. I will because you can't. I will make contact with you because you can't make contact with me. I will change you from the inside out because you cannot change yourself from the outside in. It's the new covenant. It's the covenant of God's grace. So verse 33 says, I will put my law. He doesn't get rid of his law. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect. I will put it within them and on their heart. I will write it. So under the old covenant, the law was an outside thing. But under the new covenant, it becomes an inside thing. 
Under the old covenant, the law was inscribed on two stone tablets. But under the new covenant, the law is inscribed on people's hearts. That's why you're different in Christ Jesus than you ever were. It's not because of an external set of do's and don'ts. It's because his very spirit inside of you saying, don't do this, do that, walk this way, don't walk that way. You and I have an enablement now from the inside out to do God's law that never existed under the old covenant because the law of God, apart from the enablement of God to live by it, only, only reveals our sin and inadequacy. That's why all this human virtue stuff, we can change the world, let's hold hands, let's get together, let's fix the environment, let's do this, let's do that. No. There's a real, real problem, and the new covenant is meant to solve it. See, under the old covenant, God could perhaps regulate the conduct of the people, but under the new covenant, he could change the character of people. Are you the same now as you were before you knew Christ? Come on, I hope not. So, folks, listen, our primary problem today is not the economy, nor is it the environment. Our primary problem is with our heart. It's sin sick. And so the heart of every single one of our problems today, political, financial, uh, economic, environmental, the heart of every one of our problems today is the problem with our hearts. So we need a change of heart. And under the new covenant, we get a heart transplant. It's different. We need a new heart, not a new set of laws. And that's why God didn't say to Israel, Israel, you didn't do so good with the laws I gave you. I'll give you a new set of laws. Oh, no. He gives us a new covenant, not a new set of laws. And under the new covenant, God says, I give you my spirit inside to change attitudes towards his laws. Under the old covenant, the people could come to know about God, but under the new covenant, people could come to know God personally. Hence, it says in verse 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. Now, the immediate context is Israel. There'll come a day when in the nation, no one will have to talk to them about the true Messiah because they will know of him personally. This doesn't mean there's no need for teaching or growth. It just means I don't have to tell you about your personal Savior being with you, and you don't have to tell me about mine. I know him. He's the name of the Lord Jesus. So we just don't know about God. We know God under the new covenant. It's a big It's a big, big difference. So it says as part of the new covenant, I will forgive their iniquity, their sin. I will remember no more. Which leads to this question. Under the old covenant, the sins of the people led to consequences and curses. Under the new covenant, God says the sins of the people will be forgiven. But how could it? A holy God overlook sin. Here's the answer. He didn't overlook sin. He dealt with it. Sin's penalty, yours, mine, 
was paid for by a substitute. What's his name? Yeah. So he didn't overlook sin. Oh, no, he dealt with it. It was Passover time in Jesus' day on one occasion. And he instructed his most intimate group of followers, we call them disciples, to prepare for the Passover. Do it in an upper room, said he. Typical part of homes in that part of the world. Sort of like a flat roof might have been enclosed. People could go up for a daytime meal or even nap. Prepare the Pesach, the Passover for us. I'll eat it with you there in the upper room. And then during that time, he made a striking statement recorded for us down to this very day in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28. I'll read it to you. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so at that occasion, the Passover recorded for us in Matthew, the Lord Jesus announced that the new covenant, which Jeremiah told us about thousands of years before, in chapter 31, the Lord Jesus said that new covenant is inaugurated through the sacrifice of my body and the outpouring of my blood. That's what he said. Under the old uh, new covenant, you see, holy God did not overlook sin. Holy God suffered and died for sin. That's the new covenant. Do you notice in the what I read in Matthew, it says, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so here's the deal. The new covenant is made with Israel and Israel rejected it. It was given to Israel first and Israel rejected it. As a result, a good and gracious God took it as an opportunity to propagate the good news of the new covenant with the whole world. And so Gentile people can be privy to the new covenant because Israel has rejected it. So my point made in Jeremiah is that it was established with Israel first. Israel turned from it. God, who has the capacity to use all things for the good, even that bad thing, used it as an opportunity to make sure that the gospel has gone forth so that all people groups on earth could hear and believe, which leads me to this question. Does that mean that now uh, God has rejected Israel? Well, I would like for the Bible to answer that question, not me. So uh, I will share with you Romans chapter 11, verse 11. I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. So if you don't like it, argue with the author of the text. Romans 11.11, 11, Paul, himself a Jew, speaks. He said, I say then, they, speaking of the Jews, did not stumble. Oh, they stumbled over Jesus for sure. But he said, they didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? He answers his own question. May it never be. But by their transgression, 
salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, that doesn't look like God's through with the Jews to me. It just looks like you guys got in because my people rejected the gospel. And the purpose of you guys being in is to continue to make my people jealous because God still wants to deal with them. Continuing in Romans 11, verses 25 through 27, Paul again. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, I don't want you being arrogant. And I got to tell you, there's more arrogance towards my people in the church today than I've ever seen. Those hard-hearted Jews. It's arrogance because you don't have any idea. You're just in by grace yourself. And if God plucked out the natural branches, watch out, wild olive branches. That's you guys. Don't yell at me. Read Romans. So so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Here's the mystery. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. What does partial mean? It means not total. How can I prove to you it's only partial? Look at me. I'm the evidence that God has not totally rejected Israel. It's a partial hardening. So most of my people have ears that hear not and eyes to see not. Kind of a spirit of stupor to this very day. But it's not total. There are exceptions. There are Jews who believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. It's a partial hardening. And it's time limited. Look what it says. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? God establishes his covenants with Israel, not with you. Israel rejects it. God uses this as as an opportunity to embrace the people whom he loves, you, Gentile people, as much as anybody. And during this time, God sends his representatives throughout the world to share the gospel so that as many Gentiles who are going to believe will believe. That's called the fullness of the Gentiles. God is filling up his house with as many Gentiles as are going to be saved. It's called the church age. We're in it right now. That's why a guy like me is the exception to the rule. We're not filled up with Jews. We're filled up with Gentiles. Praise the Lord. It's just wonderful. But God says this partial hardening of Israel will only continue until the fullness of the Gentiles. Then read what happens next. And then, what does it say? All Israel will be saved. So don't yell at me about tooting my Jewish horn. Uh, The Bible is a Jewish book. I guess I could yell at you for wrenching things out of the Jewish context. So it doesn't even look Jewish anymore. For crying out loud, all Israel will be saved. So there's a partial hardening. It's happening now. Fullness of the Gentiles are coming in. It's happening now. Then God returns to deal strategically as a focus with the Jews so that all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Does that mean every individual Jew is saved just because they're Jewish? No. 
Nobody is saved except through faith and confidence in the shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus. There are no favorites in God's kingdom. Everybody can come, but no one can come except through Jesus the Son. So what does that mean? There will be a period of great tribulation on earth, a horrific time. Now, this tribulation that Christians experience now, I'm talking about a specific technical term, great tribulation, a period of seven years. It's worse during the second half of the seven years. This is when Antichrist uh, rises to the fore. There's a reconstructed temple in Jerusalem. The world bows before him, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and you don't have to worry about it if you're a Christian. You ain't going to be there. You'll be raptured before. So Israel, the Jews, are going to go through it. And the persecution of the Jews during the Great Tribulation is going to make the Holocaust look like a walk in the park. Most Jews will be slaughtered during that time. And those who survive the Tribulation will come forth, as Zechariah said, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will recognize him to be their Messiah. And all Israel will be saved. Every Jew who comes through the tribulation will be saved. None others will make it through. Now I'm bringing this out because people who say uh, the church is now spiritual Israel and has replaced Israel, God's through with them, then can you please explain to me what I'm sharing with you in Romans? That looks like God still has a future plan. And then all Israel will be saved. And then it says like this, just as it is written, you can read it in Romans just like me, just as it is written, the deliverer, what's his name? The deliverer will come from Zion. What's another name for Zion? Jerusalem. The deliverer will come from Zion. And he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's another name for Israel. And then it says, This is the covenant which I will make with them, not if, when I take away their sins. Romans 11. I mean, we all know Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I hear it preached all the time. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And usually preachers stop there. That's not the whole verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. (laughs) Because I'm Jewish. That's what the text says. What does it mean to the Jew first? Does, does, does Does it mean the Jew is most important? No. Does it mean you evangelize all the Jews before you share the gospel with anyone else? Absolutely not. It's a priority of relevance. If the gospel is relevant to any people group on earth, it is first most relevant to Jews. Why? Because everything about it is Jewish. The covenants, the prophets, the holidays, the temples, the Messiah. Everything is Jewish. Our seminaries, our pulpits, have so removed this from the Jewish context, they've robbed not my people, they've robbed you. Because you you just jump into Hebrews and you don't know Leviticus. You, 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 you see that Jesus is our sacrifice and our Passover, but you haven't read what's gone before. Why am I uh, 
belaboring this point because we're in an interesting day where theologically and politically there's a, an accelerated alignment of forces against Israel, including against Jewish evangelism. So whether it's John Hagee up there in San Antonio who's so enamored by making friends with Jews, he doesn't want to offend them with the truth. He's embraced something called the double covenant theory. He didn't come up with it. There's been a bunch of people who've come up double covenant, two covenants by which God saves. He saves the Jews through Moses and the law. And he saves Gentiles through Jesus. Come on, come on. Or you get a guy named Rabbi Eckstein, who some of you support because you don't know any better. He heads up something called the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Major seminaries invite him in. Churches want him to speak. He's an unsaved Orthodox rabbi. He founded an organization where there's dialogues between Jews and Christians. How come a guy like me is never invited to participate? I'm the perfect Dude, because I got my foot in both camps. I'm the Jew boy over here and I'm a Christian over there. Well, how come I don't get invited? And I'll tell you what Rabbi Eckstein does. I know this. He whispers into the ears of seminary presidents, senior pastors, and all the rest. He says, you know, if you want to sustain our friendship, I know you do. If you want to show love to me and my people, I know you do. Please don't offend us with this talk that Jesus is the only way and that my people are going to hell if we deny him. And by the way, don't support groups like Jews for Jesus, Chosen People Ministries, and others who seek to take the gospel to Jews. As a result, support of Jewish evangelism is drying up. That's not good. So you have have the double covenant theory militating against biblical truth. You have guys like Eckstein militating against biblical truth. You got replacement theologians, even in some of our seminaries. You can't hardly find a good one anymore, who are teaching that God has uh, replaced Israel. And then you have a president whose approach to the Middle East is unique, and uh, to put it mildly, and different, and uh, not consistent with um, God's approach to the Middle East. Let me put it that way. Here I'm not defaming any political party. I'm just saying there's a worldwide realignment of nations is over against Israel. The United Nations has issued hundreds of sanctions and rebukes against Israel and six against every other country in the Middle East, though Israel has never propagated one of the wars that have taken place in modern times. In the Middle East, they just have defended themselves. Now, I'll tell you why all this is going on. It has nothing to do with politics, geography. It all has to do with spiritual realities behind the scene. Don't you see? If Satan can get rid of the Jews, he can say to everyone else, you have believed in him, in God, in vain. He made promises to Israel. We've just reviewed them. Jeremiah 31, Romans 11, Zechariah. He made promises to Israel that he will sustain them, save them, never forsake them, and they're gone. And you believe he's going to save you? You've put your confidence in him in vain just as the Jews did. Can you see what's at stake? That's why there's such astounding animosity and hatred towards dinky people in a dinky country called Israel. It is dinkified, folks.
There ain't nothing to it. You can travel through it back and forth in a few hours. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like nothing. Why so much interest in, because it's a spiritual kind of thing. I want to show you something. And uh, I'm doing pretty good on the time here, better than in the first hour. Um, so so is, are the Jews, you know, God's Old Testament people and he's done with them and now the church is God's New Testament people? That sounds real convenient. It's just sheer and utter heresy. Check out back in Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Check it out. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, the atmosphere, the physical universe, the patterned revolution of planets, the moon, the star, if this, if this fixed order departs from before me, says the Lord, if then, see it's an if then argument, if all this stuff passes away, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. You see how God is demonstrating? They're not going to cease from being a nation. You see the point? Those are good verses for Israel's enemies to memorize. (laughs) It's not going to succeed. It's not going to work. Verse 37 enhances the point. Thus is the Lord. If, see it's another if-then proposition, if the heavens above can be measured. Folks, they're fathom. You can't get to the end of atmospheric realities. God is speaking to a people before the sophisticated science we have today, but they still could appreciate the immensity of the skies. And if the heavens above can be measured. And now let's go down. The foundations of the earth searched out below. How far does it go? Who can penetrate the depths of the earth? If, if the heavens can be measured, the foundations searched out, then. See, it's another then. If then. If that's doable, then I'll also cast off. All the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, God's saying, you see how impossible it is to come to grips with the full extent of the physical universe? That's how impossible it is for you to even think I would ever reject Israel in spite of what they have done. Can't happen, Charlie. That's what it says. That's that's what it says. Now you forgive me for tooting uh, what looks like my Jewish horn. I'm not at all. I would rather be in the church of Jesus Christ than in any synagogue in the world. I ain't in them, those places. That's darkness. That's false religion. I'm not trying to make Jews at anybody. And I'm not even trying to get people to love Jewish people. I'd rather get people to love the Jewish Messiah and his word. That's all. Just love what he says. Just do what he does. Just have the same position on things, uh, including Israel, as he does. That's all. 
Uh, Charlie, l- l- let me stop now. Thank you for your patience. And you say what you, what you want to. Yes. Uh, uh, Charlie, you're right. At the end of Romans, uh, when it says, how unfathomable are his ways, how unsearchable is, how unfathomable is his wisdom, how unsearchable his ways, please remember the context. He's talking about this very thing, Jewish rejection of the gospel as an opportunity for Gentile salvation. Gentile salvation meant to arouse unsaved Jews to be jealous. Then Paul says, how unfathomable is the wisdom of God. Today, preachers just take that passage and just spout off, you know, just ad lib. What's the context? The context is how God could offer privilege to Jews. Jews could reject it. God uses it as a time to offer the same privilege to Gentiles. Gentiles get in on the blessing and arouse Jews to jealousy. Is that happening? It is. I was not led to the Lord by another Jewish believer. I was led to the Lord by a guy in the military, a Gentile who never met a Jew, but he knew Jesus. He was living proof of a loving God, and I was jealous. I want what he had. I didn't know it was a person. I thought it was a drug. (laughs) I told him, I said, set me up. What are you using? He says, well, let me tell you my story. He said story, which now I know that's called testimony. But he cleaned it up because I don't know testimony. We'll be going to a court of law. What's... It sort of was a court of law. He was taking a witness stand for Jesus. But he didn't use all that Christianese with a, you know, uh, an unsaved guy. And he told me his story. And I, uh, I was stirred up by the very Spirit of God to be saved. And uh, I was. September 5th, 1973. I never, I didn't know there was another Jew in the history of the world who believed this stuff. It didn't matter to me. I, I wanted who Mark had. Mark was his name. You, 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 you see. So, so then Paul says, "Isn't this, isn't God great? How unfathomable! How He could use all this for good, for good." I'm just getting increasingly tick. You know, when you get older, you can get more tank, cantankerous. Because what are you trying to prove? So I'm just really getting in on that. And uh, it's just upsetting to me how Scripture is wrenched out of context. And it isn't so much that there's untruth that follows, but the main truth is avoided. <laughs> the main, see, before you make application from Scripture, you have to leave it in its, te- in its context. Otherwise, you're going to be making some bad applications. So anyway. Yeah, Randy. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, 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 faith means just the right response to the evidence God has presented. Correct. And God gives different evidences at different times, and faith is the correct response to it. That's a very good question, though, Randy. For a Gentile guy, that's very good. No. All right. I am getting obnoxious. Enough, enough. Yes, Kat, see that kid right there? That's my friend Kathy, and she's going to be moving here pretty soon to Maryland. And she's working. She's going to be working. Look, I'm embarrassing her. Too bad. Um, at um, Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory because Kathy speaks another language. Physics and who knows what. She's been here in the space industry for NASA, and the Lord is redirecting her paths, and she's just a, I'm going to miss that kid right there. But uh, happy, these are her friends, because this is just a wonderful, wonderful recognition by outsiders what a special person I think she is. Anyway, Kathy, what were you going to say? She's the best. Right. Yes. Not exactly. Although that's a very good observation. Uh, during that tribulation, 144,000 of God's evangelists are going to be the Jews. Uh, so that's like a whole bunch of believing Jews. 12,000 from each tribe. So, you know, we're just talking about obnoxious city. If you think I'm... Think about, multiply, 144,000. But there will be many, many, many Gentile uh, people uh, saved through their ministry. And by the way, God called the Jews not to be sitting around thinking they're special. I'm chosen. No. Uh, he gave us the privilege of representing him, and we have not. And Jesus, the the ultimate Jew represented the Father. We have failed miserably. But in that day, you see, of turning around and revival and change, the Jews finally will tell people about their own Messiah. Uh, yes, that is one of the manifold ways in which uh, uh, Kathy's words, the Jehovah's Witnesses have messed up. Yes, they believe they, some of their elect, are the 144,000, but that simply can't be because look how clear God was to say 12,000 and then he enumerates each of the 12 tribes, which is quite interesting because we don't know who belongs to what tribe today, but apparently God kept the records because when you get to to the book of Revelation, it's sort of spilled out, but we don't have any, I don't have any idea what tribe I belong to or anything like like that, but apparently it's important to God. So yeah, that's one way in which they're they're way off. There are many. Well, folks, thank you for your... Pe- yes, Bob. Oh, what a great question. It was the, supposed to be the other way. The Jews were supposed to make the nations, Canaanites and Egyptians jealous and wanting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob instead of their false gods. And what did the Jews do? They took on their gods. 
They fell into it. Terrible. The Gentile could embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be part of the faith community. So we find when the Jews were liberated from Egypt, a number of Egyptians went with them. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. I'll do my best. This is a great question. The questioner, sister, asks is about the man of lawlessness spoke. It's the Antichrist uh, spoken of in Second Thessalonians who will have the capacity to delude and deceive. And her question is, if um, does that mean if someone has rejected Christ prior to the tribulation, they'll be deluded all through the tribulation? No, not necessarily. That person in seeing the manifold signs and wonders and so on could put it all together and say, oh, my goodness, I've had a Christian friend. I've heard the gospel. I held it at arm's length. Now it's all making sense to me. The delusion, however, is to delude the world into thinking he's the peacemaker and the actual Messiah when he's not the Christ. He's the Antichrist. They're going to think he's the Savior because there is no peace in the world. United Nations is a mockery. Nobody could get it together. Land for peace in Israel is foolishness. So this guy somehow is going to be able to bring the warring parties, particularly in the Middle East, together. People lay down their arms. Uh, He arranges for a reconstructed temple. He thinks, I'll give this to the Jews. Finally, they get their temple. But then he'll require them to worship him there. So that's the delusion. It's no different than on a much smaller scale, political delusion today, where people believe the promises of uh, politicians who want the vote. They're the ones who messed up the system where they have been on lower levels, and yet they expect us to believe on higher levels they can fix what they done broke. See, this just... That's a delu- That's a, on a much smaller scale. People so desperate, hungry for stability of an economic and other kind. I'm not faulting people that we just look and we make decisions. What a person sounds like, what a person looks like, you know, how a person comes across and all the rest. And boom, they vote. I mean, it's very interesting to see the voting populace on on all levels today, local and all the rest. If you ask someone to give you information about the platform of the person voting for, it's quite interesting to see. Most don't know. I just like, I just like the way he looks. I like the way, you know, this, man, we'd be in a heap of trouble. You know, this democracy is going to kill us because the vote of a stupid person cancels out the vote of, a, of an informed voter. So I'm in favor of a dictatorship. I would like to <laughs> volunteer myself, you know. But anyway, all right. God bless you, folks. We'll see you next time.